0: Well, that was a very peculiar lord's supper um <laughs> meditation and, and and we will um we'll allow you to vote in the chat in the chat room what, uh, whether we should let them do that again or whether we should perhaps encourage them to find membership somewhere um we love you guys we really do that was that was memorable and 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 I think you, you made some some very interesting and good points so thank you thank you it means a lot I think we all enjoyed it except Dave and um <laughs> we under we can understand how that works at times right um also thank you uh, many of you know that my mother took a fall this week uh, no bones are broken but she's a bruised girl and she is uh, still giggling and happy and thank you for praying But she won't be able to be with us for a week or two at least so we're just going to play this by ear also um in the newsletter i said something which was not true do not be shocked this has happened before but it's because anytime i veer from what i know you can really tell pretty quick Uh, i thought that the app the church app did not have fees but tidely does well the church app goes through tidely so yes it's the same fees so you can choose to pay the fees but we don't you don't have to you're giving whether it's five dollars or whatever is hugely appreciated and I wanted to clear that up in case you had tried to go through the app and you'd seen fees that was all me that wasn't Dave or Kirsten or anybody who has actual knowledge of uh, financial things my wife actually even has to balance our checkbook Because she didn't like my system when we were first married. My system was an an elegant one, I thought. And that is every three years, change banks. And you just go in and say, what do I have? And so now you know. You've got your baseline and you can go from there. If I knew um, and understood money, I wouldn't be doing this job. Anyway, yeah, I would be. God does not let you go once he grabs you. One of our members up in Indiana asked, have I ever done a story on Absalom? I was thinking what's to say but I do take suggestions and so I, I thought all right this guy's got something let me have a look I love it when suggestions come in and this one's a bit more challenging because there's nothing approaching a biography of Absalom in scripture but there are several chapters that weave his story into the larger failure story of King David. Now that's something I'd, I'd really surprised me whenever I grew up and, and drifted and then found my way back into faith and had to wrestle with scripture. I was shocked when I read scripture and it wasn't through the eyes of vacation Bible schools and little illustrated books and, and sermons to find that the story of King J- David is not a heroic one. It's actually a story of failure. A failure on almost every level that then poisoned the nascent kingdom of Israel. And Absalom was right in there as part of that failure. If you go look him up, one of my favorite companion books. I have books that stay right with me whenever I'm working. uh, is the Oxford companion to the Bible. Because if there's a name or a, a, a river or something, I'm not sure what it is. They've got it all in there. And the Absalom is just three inches by two inches. That's all they've got. So what what do we know about him? And why should we care? Well, this is another one of those, the Bronze Age is moving into the Iron Age. And if you don't quite understand what that means, uh, historians have long divided periods of human development. These are highly artificial and they all know that. Nobody is claiming that they're not. But it is a way to talk about the development of humankind in the most developed areas. When they went from from bronze to iron, now their swords didn't break as much and now their, their things lasted longer and they could have plows that actually didn't bend when it hit the hard crust of the earth. And so it it was a big, a huge uh, advance. In fact, you might be surprised at the little things that turn the world around. The reason why some, all of a sudden, Calvary people could do amazing battles and win was because somebody developed the stirrup. Before then, a Calvary person coming and swinging would get hit by somebody else and they just fall off. A stirrup allowed them to use the power of the horse behind their swing. Little things, little things like that. And a little bit of iron tacked on the front of your wooden plow changed everything. And so that's where we are. We're right in the middle of this. People before this time were basically one of two. Hunter gatherers or farmers. Farmers slash herdsmen. One of the two. And every visitor that you saw was a stranger and a threat, or maybe a gift, but there was no way to know which it was. If those of you that watched American Westerns, it's similar to that when you have the, the widow with the young child and she's trying to make the, a go of the farm, and all of a sudden one day she sees a rider on the ridge, and we all go, Oh no this could be good. This could be horrible. That was life. That was life for over a thousand years during this time. Life was very short and the survival of the family was always in doubt. There was never a time that you could say, okay, we're good. We're good for the next six months. We're good for, no, the survival was always in doubt. Polygamy was very, very common. And there were sociological reasons for that. Women sought the protection of men. And as powerful men gathered women to ensure their lines survival, that worked, it worked. It allowed their lines to survive as long as a more powerful man didn't come by. But at the same time, it created something else. And that is a lot of young men who had no prospect of ever having a wife and a family and their line continuing. And that turns them into roving gangs, robbers. Um, It turns them into violent people. This is a critical issue in some Islamic countries now, and I'm not um, dissing Islam. Islam's working on this. They're talking about it openly. And almost all Islamic countries, by the way, have, have stopped the polygamy from running like it used to run because they found out we end up with a bunch of young men who have no prospects and they turn into violent problems. Well, we had that issue in Christianity. We had that issue in Europe. We had it in Africa. We had it in Asia. This is a human problem. It wasn't created by a particular religion. It's a human issue. But polygamy with all of its horrors had a purpose and had a curse. Now, Jesus makes it very plain in Matthew 19 that it was never God's intention for there to be polygamy. I've had people uh, actually in my office trying to argue that God never said polygamy was, was outlawed and... You know, so they, now they, they think they should be able to practice, it, and this was years ago. Um, and it was one of those days in Colorado. After the end of the day, I came home and looked at Cami, and I said, "There's no way to describe what goes on in my office." Sometimes, uh, I finally said, "Yes, Jesus did say you couldn't um, couldn't marry more than one, because he said no man can serve two masters." <laughs> it was <clears throat> it was a little taken out of context. I, I, I will have to give you this. But polygamy was one of the crucial steps of moving from wandering tribes to kingdoms. It allowed a man and a family to gain power enough and stability enough to rise above the others and eventually go from chief to king. But let's talk about kingdoms because we get those ideas wrong. If you um, if you watch art or you, ha- you know anything about art, all of the... Um, the representations of David and Solomon and the like, you see stone castles, you see knights in armor. And it's very hard to get away from this, but the people in medieval Europe were just painting what they knew and what they thought of kingdoms. There would have been no palace as we think of it. There would have been tents with perhaps rugs down, which was an amazing development. There would have been plants and gardens around, and there might have been some fountains that they dug. And don't think of, you know, spraying fountains, just think of little rivers coming in and they put rocks in it to make a noise. Um, they, they would put wood and stone together and then cover it with dirt, and that would be your wall. You, you, you have to get back into the Bronze Age and the Iron Age to get your, your thoughts here. So not Camelot. And I've never watched Game of Thrones or the Vikings or any of that. But uh, I'm sure that those were you know, dirtier, rattier, smellier palaces. Than probably closer to the reality. Kingdoms at the time of Saul and David were very, very rough approximations of what we would call a kingdom today. They were really a tribe with a localized center that very often moved. Yeah they moved. Wood, wood, walls were wood, stone, and dirt. Um, there were some Iron Age people, and this would be a bit later, here in what we now call the United States of America, but also across the world who figured out a way to actually set on fire the wood and stone inside of the, uh, of the dirt and created vitrified forts. And believe it or not, we're still not exactly sure how they pulled that off, but they still stand. Those of our members in southern Ohio know about uh, the Fort Hill State Park and about the, the Great Serpent Mound and such. One of the largest cities in the world for a long time was Cahokia, Illinois, a city of great mounds. And then when the Americans came through looking for land, they were going, Well, these bumpy bits, we're done with that. And they, they, most of them are now plowed under. So um, good job, guys. Uh, still, Life inside a palace back then was smelly, rough, crowded, and awful. But it was better than life outside, except for those that were way out. And for them, life was better. It was cleaner, healthier, until a stranger appeared on the horizon. And then everything was iffy. And you need to get this in, because we just don't get this. We don't understand the fragility of life, and how nasty, brutish, and short it really was. Those not in the king's family or in his employ would live outside the palace, trying to stay within running distance of the palace, so that they could get to where the guys that had weapons were. But not to be too close, because being seen and being noticed by the powerful rarely went well. So you hovered on the edges. David, King David now, had waged a guerrilla war against King Saul for years. and the books of 1 and 2 Samuels uh, and the, the first few chapters of 1 Kings are all about how David came to the throne. God had promised to set his kingdom, his family, as a line of kings forever in Jerusalem. And those who say, well wait, that only lasted two and a half kings... You're, you're correct. I would ask you to go to the Monday morning messages. Everything we put online is free. There are no paywalls. There's not a tip bucket. Um, people who give here on, um, through our different varieties of way of giving, they pay for everything. And so you don't have to unless you can give and then give because it's a blessing. However, all that said, um, if you go there, there's a whole series on who told you about hell. And I have to spend a couple of weeks there talking about the word forever or everlasting. Because the fact is that the Hebrew people don't have a word that means infinity uh, or everlasting like we do. The ancient people didn't have it. Their word forever meant until it's done. And now we use that word like that sometimes too. We'll tell people, I love you forever, but one of you is going to die but we, we don't say, well, that then, you're, you're lying. No, we get it. They love you, and then there, there may be an ending, and, and God had kept telling David, I'll do this if, and I'll do this for you if, and there were a lot of ifs that David failed on. Well, David finally moves to Jerusalem. You see, his little capital had been in Hebron, or Hebron, as some people pronounce it. I have found, by the way, only in the last, since podcasts became a thing, I have found that I mispronounce almost every ancient name in scripture. I had no idea. And then I'll listen to professors and I'll go, oh, well, now how do I switch without sounding like an idiot? Well, I, I think idiocy must be assumed, and I wish I'll just go forward. But uh, David moved from Hebron to the mountain of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was on a mountain in the same way that Kansas has a mountain. And that is any, rise, any raised area is, ooh, that's impressive. It's a raised area. And so it's, we would call it the hill, but it is called the Mount of the Lord in scripture. And so he was now the high king who had taken the high ground. And once again, it's something we don't talk about much, but in most kingdoms you had many kings. And then you had a high king. In Ireland, the Ardri, in, in Gaelic or in Scotland, the Ardri, the higher king among all the other kings. So now he was the high king on high ground. But David was also David. He was a king of the late Bronze, early Iron Age, which meant David had a very low view of the value of women or the value of anyone else who did not benefit him at that moment. Read it and prove me wrong. He was only interested in those that could benefit him at the moment in the way he wanted. His bravado, his self-centeredness lit a fuse that would eventually blow up his kingdom. Absalom was his third son. His mother was Maaka, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Gesher. There will not be a test later. These kingdoms were tiny. You could see into other kingdoms. Gesher, if you remember where the Sea of Galilee is, you have the Dead Sea, you have the Jordan River, and you have the Sea of Galilee. Gesher is all over here on the eastern and northwestern side. Uh, I'm sorry, of western and northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's the Golan Heights. Perhaps you've heard of that in, in your news reports. And it, is, it overlooks most of Israel. And the king of Gesher had a daughter who David married and Absalom was the son and he was given a great head start in life. I forget who it was who said originally about a rich person that they were born on third and thought they'd hit a triple. I think all of us in this room were born pretty advanced compared to a lot of the world and that we had family and food and protection and the like. Well, Absalom was given a great head start in life. He was David's son. He was extremely handsome. His hair is mentioned frequently, that it was so long and so thick, and everybody really loved it, and he would have it cut every so often, and they would weigh it because it was so thick. So many reasons to dislike this fellow already. He had charisma, and he was smart. and by all accounts, he was very well loved and very well admired by by his father as well as by the people in and around jerusalem he had three sons and one daughter but there's a little question mark there because in second samuel 18 18 he laments that he has no son to carry forward his name well theologians give us two ways of solving that issue and either one of them actually makes sense one is that he may have said that before he had three sons and a daughter. Or the other is that his sons by that time had died. Please remember, there are many societies that didn't even name their child until they were two or three years old because you didn't want to get that attached. It is that rugged. Well, in America, in America until 1940, the average family, the youngest child would hit 14 about the time dad died that's not long ago. We sometimes think, well, why didn't they just take a pill? Things are different now. We are blessed now, whether we feel blessed or not. David's misuse and treatment and mistreatment of women was not at all unusual in those days, although it was abominable. Of course, his sons did the same. One of David's sons raped Absalom's sister ah polygamy all of these young men and young women related but stuck in the same area jerusalem at this time david's kingdom would have his palace would have been you know and all the retinue around there about two acres this is not a big thing it grows over the centuries but they're all packed in there and there was a rape and then the man threw her away had to have her, then hate her. The Bible says he looked upon her and despised her. Sadly, there are men like that today. Absalom took her into his house. And that sounds nice, but it isn't. If you read the tale, it was to hush her up. So that, And he told her, do not speak of it. 2 Samuel thirteen twenty says that she lived in Absalom's house, quote, a desolate woman. I don't know how we got the idea of the ruddy-cheeked David going around like Robin Hood doing good deeds, you know, dangerously. Uh, It's just hard, friends, to read these stories. But Absalom, even though he brought his sister in and showed her no love or care, except just allowing her to eat and sleep somewhere, he did not like it that somebody had dissed his family and his sister. So it's really weird. He didn't care about her. He cared about what it looked like for him. So two years later, uh, as they say, revenge is a dish best served cold. Jesus would say it's a dish best thrown away. But uh, two years later, Absalom throws a party for all of David's boys. And they all get there and he has it set up. That at a certain time, his people were to fall on Ammon, the man who raped his sister, and kill him. And he, then he had this thing. He managed the news. Absalom was a politician. Did you get that from the reading that Jean Anne did? He was a politician. You know, if I was in charge, I would take care of these things. You have a legitimate concern, and I will sort it out. If I was in charge, have you not heard that five million times over the last, in this election cycle? every election cycle yeah well he sends the news back to David all of your sons are dead well David is just what well you we don't we don't have a word for it devastated doesn't touch it and he waits for a while before then he allows him to say oh no just Ammon do you see how he managed the news and even today when something happens One of the general rules of life is first reports are always wrong, but sometimes they're wrong on purpose. This was a great evil in royal families, not because there had been a rape, but because a younger heir to the throne had killed an older one. Can you understand this? Even by this time, the state meant more than the people. Absalom still was loved and beautiful and Ammon wasn't so David got over it here we need to talk about lessons and lessons we're going to apply them at the end and this isn't at the end so if i got your hopes up sorry we we will take a moment to mourn the dashing of those hopes all kingdoms created by men all kingdoms created by men are selfish kingdoms period. Long before David, all of those rulers, selfish. All the way through David to Queen Victoria or to Vladimir Putin or to any empire builder, the creation and expansion of kingdoms serves those at the top, no one else. And we need to quit looking for saviors from London, Brussels, or Washington. Our Savior came from our sight to save us. And we will not vote in a Savior. It will not work because all kingdoms are selfish. Absalom was still in trouble, so he fled. Remember my little imaginary lap, uh, map? All the way up to the Sea of Galilee and over to his grandfather's house, the king of Gesher. David, it is said, missed him every day because he was very much David's favorite, but didn't know how to bring him back without throwing his, his very new kingdom into turmoil and making the royal line go crazy had he only known what was going to happen to that line. So family survival was everything. It took Joab. Joab's not a good guy. Joab is a hit man. He's David's hit man. Joab goes and kills people, and sometimes he kills a bad guy, but they don't have to be bad for him to kill them. I was asked once to do a big youth rally, and they liked to take themes from the big movies of of whatever was going at the time of the youth rally, and it was Master and Commander, if you remember that one, uh, about a ship's captain and and the like, and they wanted me to do that with David and Joab, and I'm going, you know, I don't know, how old are, What's the age of the teens coming in? Because a lot of things you say about Joab, you got to be really careful, because he was just a bad person, and he only obeyed the laws when it made sense to him. Well, it took Joab, David's chief of staff and top general, to go get Absalom back into Jerusalem by setting up this very elaborate trick on David. We won't go into it. It's in chapter two. I'm sorry, Second Samuel chapter fourteen. Second Samuel 14 is the elaborate trick. So he's allowed to come back to Jerusalem, but he's not allowed to see his father. Well, that didn't matter. The people loved Absalom. He had that long, heavy hair, skin without a blemish, strikingly handsome. These were the people in high school that were more popular than you. The people loved him. But he was at heart a venal, amoral man in every action and interplay we see. I would just, a cautionary tale, be very careful who you love. Be very careful whose sign you put in your yard. Be very careful who you swear allegiance to. Because sometimes we'll say they're good and we define good as they'll do what we want them to do. Not like all the other ones that said they would and didn't. When do you learn? (laughs) When when do we learn uh, about any of this? Be careful who you love. And yeah, even interpersonal. Young ladies got to tell you something. And young men. If you're dating somebody who's cruel to you or mistreats you. This is their best behavior. It doesn't get better. Be careful who you love. He had Joab's fields burned, uh, this is Absalom, Joab's fields were burned down when Joab wouldn't come at his summons. See, Joab was David's hit man and he wasn't going to come for this little individual. There were other words that popped in. I could bring Dan up because he could probably <laughs> say them. <laughs> you you made an impression. It was a good one. It was. You both did. You did a great job. You might have a, you might have a job now from now on. But Joab wasn't going to do that. So Absalom had his fields burned. I'm going to set your fields on fire. You've heard that. That's a biblical phrase that is used time and again. So Absalom decides, I'm going to set myself up to, um, to be the next king. And I got I to get the people behind me because Joab's not going to do it. And that's when he did as Ann read to us. He got 50 men to ride ahead of him. Wouldn't that be handy? That way, clear the field of bandits, clear the field of the strangers. Everybody's wondering, by by number 10, you're probably wondering, what is this? By 50, you're going, who can afford this? And then here comes Mr. Super nice looking charisma guy. To get ahead of the leaders at the gate and settle complaints. His caring for others looks, looks really great, but it was for his benefit, not theirs always ask what police have to ask at at every murder always ask at every commercial at every promise whether it's from a person uh, individually or a politician who benefits who benefits and i want you to see the difference i want you to already start working on where we're going to end up christ didn't benefit from taking care of us there's nothing selfish about the kingdom of christ christ spent himself god spent himself they still spend themselves to this very day total opposite of the idols we set up wow well, he made a pretense of having promised his grandfather that he wouldn't that he would go to hebron and worship god there uh, again, why would he have to even let dad know? Because back in those days, any movement of people was a threat to the system. Therefore, you had to have permission to move. Even from Jerusalem to Hebron. And if you've done much traveling, I, I bring up several times, I watch people who travel the world um, because they go places I'm never going to go. And it's fascinating. And one uh, very sweet, kind guy named Drew Bensky he's a little red-headed Jewish guy. And he goes to Iraq, he goes to Afghanistan, he goes everywhere. And the people are super nice to him and he's super nice back. But many times, in fact, I, I believe I can, I'm correct. Every time I saw him in trouble and in deep difficulty, it was because there was a government paper that he had to have before he could take a picture of this or before he could enter that building or before he could cross this. It is, again... You have to have permission to move. So Absalom goes, I'm going to worship God in Hebron. Well, why in Hebron? That's where the Ark of the Covenant had been forever. Uh, that's where they had worshipped. That's where David's first kingdom set up was, his first capital. So he took with them him hundreds of men to worship, many of whom didn't know that this was in fact a coup. When David found out That they had, Absalom had announced a coup in Hebron, David abandoned the city of Jerusalem. Why? Well, because he was old and ineffectual at this time. He had already spent all of his personal collateral on himself, and he was not well loved anymore. He had abrogated his responsibilities. He had stayed at home during times of war, he had slept around with his soldiers' wives instead of leading them on the battlefield. He had Joab as his hitman to deal with threats that the king was supposed to face down, face to face. And still the people wept as he left Jerusalem. And why? Because any change in king was accompanied by uncertainty. You had no property rights in those times. There would be war, taxes, dislocation, as the new king, whoever that might be, flexed their muscles. And along the road, David was shamed by the people. They threw mud at him. They threw stones. They cursed him. Absalom hears of this and thinks, good news. It's time to consolidate my base and make my move. So he enters Jerusalem and he does something else that's also very PG-13, really are if we have to talk about it at all. And that is he moved concubines up and a concubine was a secondary wife merely to keep the line going. Any children born belong to the king, not to the woman. And he took some of them up on top of a, um, of a building, which would have been probably a one-story mud thing, but they're in plain sight. Uh, and in the tents, he entered the tents. And to enter the tent means that you are sleeping with the wives. I'm just, That's as much as I can say, since we don't know what little Ill ears are there. It was his way of saying, everything's mine now. Again, these women had no value to these men. I'm just... I've had people say, you know, if you're really looking down, read the Bible. And I'll say, parts of the Bible. Other parts will make you go out and kick something. And this is just abhorrent. And while he was doing this, he sent his army out to find and destroy his father. That sounds very familiar. David sleeping around, send the army out. Like father, like son. Apple, proximity, tree. Fill it in. When it was seen that the battle was unavoidable, a great many of the outlying tribes and families rallied and supported David, and they advised, they said, we're gonna fight for you, but we don't think you can help us. You just stay at the gate. I mean, what a shameful time. Don't go with them in battle. This you did this did not happen in the Bronze Iron Age divide. But David says, quote, Whatever seems best to you. He's not a king anymore. And this, by the way, won't be the last son who rebels against him and leads a coup. And no, I'm not going to tell the story of the other one. It's this one, just carbon copied and not as effective because he wasn't as good looking, I guess. Absalom and his men fought against those loyal to David, and it was a far ranging battle, fields and in woods. Um, and in the forest. And in one dense wood, Absalom got his head caught in the branches. By the way, if you ever want to win a trivia uh, contest, ask people how Absalom died, and they'll say he, he hung by his hair from a tree. Nope. Not to be pedantic. Yeah, actually it is. I'm being pedantic. The Bible never says hair. It, he got his head stuck. Which makes more sense, because of his hair. You can cut that. But you're riding through and two branches grab maybe break a jaw hold on donkey keeps going because donkeys don't wake up in the morning trying to figure out how to be a good donkey they're donkeys gone and he's hanging there and joab hears one of the men spots and he goes absalom's hung up in the tree there in typical joab fashion Although he was told expressly by David, do not harm Absalom. He takes his men and kills Absalom. David never got over it. Ever. Watch him the rest of his life. Watch what he says and does. Not a single king, however. Not a single king. Not a single powerful figure of his day or many generations later learned one single thing from this. How appalling is that? They didn't learn a thing. So what should we learn? Well, let's start with the simple stuff. Um, Beauty is a blessing. It's also a trap. It's an opportunity. And it's a danger. You'll see sometimes, especially in a month and a half from when this is done, we don't know when you're going to watch, but after Christmas, immediately, the exercise gym and the mirror that will yell at you thing that you had to pay per month for that's called peloton and i don't do you not have people in your life to yell at you but anyway um you uh, there's the internet they will yell at you for free on the internet but they will do that because now you got to lose your weight and lose your And they will have these models that have never had fat on them in their life. Or guys, they're all big muscles. Only five minutes a day. Liar. It's genetics. Just come on and say, God bless me with this. Sorry about you, but I'll still be your friend. You know, we can go out together or something. Charisma is the same. Any beauty, any ability, intelligence. Um... What, what skills that you've got, give it to God. Amen. Give it to God. Because if you don't, it's a trap that'll leave you hanging in a tree, metaphysically. We, we're supposed to use our brains and our looks and our, everything else for future generations. We also could learn this. Polygamy is a stupid thing. And every society pretty much finds that out after a while and starts dialing it down. In the Quran, it's highly regulated. Uh, later, they ignored the Quran in some in some places, but um, even you know back during the time of Muhammad, he said, "No, this is this is pretty bad," um, so he limited it. That's bad. Here's another bad thing: men ruling over women and treating them as if they're not people, not equal, not also made in the Garden of Eden alongside them. That's that's evil in its plainest form. It was evil when Absalom did it. It's evil when men dump their wives and marry someone young enough to be their daughter or granddaughter as a sign of their wealth and power. It's wrong. And that reliance on any, we can also do this another one, any reliance on any king or political party is a fool's game. Stay informed, please. If you want to be involved in politics, you're allowed to. Although the Bible does say any good soldier does not entangle themselves in the affairs of this world. So maybe there's some balance and some lines there. I won't draw them for you. I won't tell you who to vote for ever. We don't do politics here. I also won't tell you um, which not only party but which position you should vote for and which you shouldn't. You know that's between you and God. And God didn't give me the authority to draw those lines. So I won't. But I will say this. The book of Revelation was written to testify that every human government is a beast. And if you find yourself bowing to it, you're bowing the wrong direction. Read the book there. It's not to tell us that we get to kill sinners at the battle of Armageddon. It's about governmental authority acting as if it is a God and the bestower of all good gifts. The Bible says that government can do good and it can moderate the worst behaviors and I'm, I'm so grateful that it does that. I'm grateful for laws. I'm grateful for law enforcement officers. I'm grateful for those guardrails that government, good government can and should put in place. But the warnings of 1 Samuel 8 about kings are still valid to this day and should be reread from time to time. Our king is seen in Revelation 5. And his kingdom, this Lion of Judah, appears as a slaughtered lamb. His kingdom is the only unselfish kingdom. In the 60s, people tried to divorce themselves from all this stuff and just live in peace with no rules, just love. And that really went sideways, didn't it? They tried, they tried, but it, eventually somebody gets all the wives and makes all the rules. Our king is Jesus. We are then to act like our king and act like a member of our kingdom. We give sacrificially. We love sacrificially. We serve sacrificially and we work sacrificially because that's what our king does. Earthly kings can treat people as possessions or lesser beings. I, I won't say which party. I will just say that years and years ago, I was standing in Columbus Airport, Columbus, Ohio. Standing by one of those doors that does not open, should not open, just waiting for my flight, the door opened. Men in suits came out and immediately shoved me against a wall. It's not as if my family is unaware of this position, but... I thought, that's a bit much. Two or three men were like this and just staring at me when someone walks by. And that person, I recognize them as the current attorney general of the United States. Well, wait a minute. Why do they get to do that to people? You see what I mean? Jesus never did stuff like that. He stopped when he was teaching a sermon, doing a sermon, and a blind beggar basically goes, help! Help! Jesus stopped church to go take care of him. That's my king. Revelation 5 That's my king. And we will treat every person we meet as one of our king's family just as we are in his family. I know I've gone long. I'm going to try to land this plane. Being a Christian changes everything or it's useless. It either transforms everything or it is powerless and should be discarded. We need to check the direction in which we are bowing. As we enter this amazing week, where we thank each other and we thank God, it's an American tradition. Canadians have Thanksgiving too. I, I believe it's before ours, just so they can get the jump and get their prayers in first, maybe. <laughs> I love Canada, I just love them. I am thankful for an unselfish king who created an unselfish kingdom in which we are free to live an unselfish life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.